Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of July 27th, 2023. I'm Charles Hayne. I'm here with Gigi Hawkins. Hello there. So we've got some strike updates, including a thing I got wrong last week. So I'm going to own up to that. You know, it's always always good to have a public apology on the on the podcast. But before we get to strike updates and a really fun Ask No Film School, we've got an interview with filmmaker Jess Dimmick, who is one of the people pushing for the new DGA parental leave policy. So, Gigi, you want to introduce that? Yeah. So you and I came across Jessica Dimmock's story before, I want to say before the pandemic. I keep mixing up pandemic and strike and calling them the same thing. But this was the the COVID pandemic when Jessica started the parenthood penalty campaign, the DGA parenthood penalty campaign. So for context, she was shooting a Netflix show. She had just joined the DGA and she needed time off to recover from birth. And she was shooting up until the day she gave birth. And there was no DGA policy that protected her. So she was basically required to meet a minimum earnings requirement. But because she couldn't work, because she had a baby, she lost her health care at the time that she needed it most. And she started this campaign. And it's a fight for all parents, moms, dads, adopted parents to have the time they need to like welcome a child into the world, which is like we'll talk about in the interview, totally standard in all other industries. And it kind of went viral when it started. You know, it had support from everyone from Natalie Portman to Greta Gerwig and Ava DuVernay, Amy Poehler. And when I saw this campaign, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad somebody is fighting for this because when I started in this film industry, I was like, I guess I have to choose. Like, do I have a career or do I have a family? And I don't, I never really felt like there was space to explore having both. And now I feel like there's a there's a chance. And I have seen a couple of examples. And so I really am excited that we get to speak with Jess about her work on this campaign because right now we're very focused on the WGA strike, the SAG strike. But this was actually a very monumental thing that happened within the DGA contracts recently. So here's our interview. Thank you so much, Jess, for joining us and for creating this campaign with with such immense support and seeing it come to fruition. So can you tell us a little bit about the DGA Parenthood Penalty Campaign that you started and then where we're at now? Sure. So my daughter was born in 2017, and it was the first year that I had joined the DGA. And so, you know, in the in the weeks following her birth, I kind of checked in with the DGA to see what their kind of parental leave policy was, you know, knowing ahead of time that I was probably not going to be able to make my year's quota, you know, especially as a brand new mother, but also as a new member of the DGA. Like, you know, I didn't have that much DGA work necessarily coming in. And I kind of was, but I was now getting my health insurance through them. And I assumed that there must be some kind of plan (laughs) for people that were in a position like mine. And I found out from the DGA at the time that there was, there was no plan. There was, there was kind of nothing existed. And so I got kind of swept up with motherhood motherhood and you know early stages of just trying to get back to work and things like that but several years later it, it had kind of not stopped nagging me and bothering me that there was no plan compounded by the fact that I had 
indeed lost my health insurance in in my first year of having my kid for from not being able to make my minimums. And so I was faced with this kind of real life situation of losing my health insurance and it just felt really wrong. And so I confronted the DGA again, asked them if there had been any update to the policy. There had not not been. And I decided to write a letter and had reached out to a friend of mine to see if there might be some way to get like one celebrity to co-sign the letter. And instead I got this kind of outpouring of support from Alma Harrell, from, you know, an, an amazing director, but also the founder of Free the Work and Free the Bid. My friend Brooke Posh started introducing me to people like Amy Schumer and Amy Poehler. And, you know, all of a sudden I got like 50 amazing directors and powerful kind of actors to sign on in support. And so we presented it back to the DGA in hopes that it would grab their attention. In, in this letter, what, what specifically were you asking for? So the letter basically outlines my own, you know, very briefly my own experience, which is, and, you know, with the idea that like, it's just very simple. Like I'm a mom, I therefore, especially directing, it's like a, a job that frequently requires travel. I'm a mom. I can't travel at this time, nor could I travel like a couple of months leading up to the birth of my child. It's impossible for me to work right away. And what I'm asking for is just that you give me, I'm not asking for money. I'm not asking to be paid during this time. I'm just asking that you give me a break before you cut off my insurance. So if I normally have 12 months to make my quota, given the fact that a few of those months I'm going to be out of commission, can you give me an extension of the time? You know, instead of 12 months to make my minimum, could it be 18 months or 16 months? And, you know, also just really asking for the DJ to consider in light of all of these conversations about equity and parity in filmmaking and inclusiveness in filmmaking. Do you think honestly that like having an archaic policy about parental leave is going to be a step in that direction? So also just kind of challenging like how the lack of a program kind of stands in the face of, of what they say they're trying to do. What's astounding to me from where I sit, is that these battles had to be fought in 2017 and not 1977. Like, it's one of those things where, like, I recognize in life that there's big societal changes that happen and it takes us a while to, like, shuffle around and figure out the implications. But, like, by World War II, there was a substantial push for women in the workforce. By the 70s, there was a huge cultural push for women in the workforce. And the idea that, like, oh, well, you know, you'll just work through it. And yeah. there are no implications, like just seems wild. I mean, yeah. not surprising and surpri- there should be a word for like simultaneously like surprising and depressingly unsurprising at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a word. It's like predictable, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And, and I did, I found that very surprising as well that like when I brought this letter, you know, when I called the DGA and kind of like found out about like there not being a plan. That was, you know, surprising to to me. But when I presented the letter several years later, I presented the letter in early 2020 or maybe the very tail end of 2019, because it like took me a while to even just kind of come back to the issue and then find a way of like getting, making the kind of right strategy for it. That when I presented it in the room at this board meeting, that like the look of kind of 
like shock and that it, all of these board members coming up after me and being like, this is, you know, this is a long time coming, but this has never really been brought up. Like no one that like, that this was really the first time they were kind of officially addressing it. And only because I kind of stormed in and like demanded that they officially address. Like it, it was just amazing to me that that hadn't, hadn't been part of the conversation. Well, it's also one of these things. I was on a job last summer and we wrapped every day so I could be home at bedtime. And at one point, a crew member took me aside because I have a kid. And at one point, the crew member took me aside and was like, man, I, I only want to work for directors with kids now. This is great. Like, we're never going past 7.30. This is awesome. And, you know, it was a joke and we laughed. But then I realized, like, there's also this assumption that whatever your gender, male or female, that, like, you can just skip out on participating in your kids. Like, even the idea that, like, in the 70s, it was predominantly men who were making up the DGA ranks. But like, ah, your kid's born, but you should still be back on set a couple of weeks later, like, is still sort of endemic. And I realized, like, in my career, I was a DP before I was director. I worked for people with kids so many times, and we just shot straight through bedtime till, till four in the morning all the time. And it was just, like, assumed that somebody else was taking care of it. And there is this, like, default assumption in the film industry that, like... Well, every job is special and unique. So of course you should give up everything else in your life for every single job. But it's like, actually, no, if this is like a regular job we're doing all the time, it needs to be built in a way that we can still be there for our kids. Absolutely. And that's yeah. like, you know, and this idea too, I mean, that's like the campaign about asking for a little bit of not getting cut off from my insurance, like didn't even remotely address the idea of like some of the reality, which was that. I did work up until the day that I gave birth. There was never, it never even occurred to me to ask the production. I mean, I'm not faulting them for this. It's like, it was much more the culture of what we were doing. I worked up until the day that I gave birth. My you know, husband went back to work immediately or my partner who, because we worked together on that project, he went back to work right away. I was back pretty immediately. It never occurred to any of us to like ask the production, hey, can you slow down because the director of this is about to bring a human into this world. Like it was just kind of like, no, no stopping. We can't pause, you know, and that again, that's like not, that wasn't necessarily top down. That was just like, you know, the culture that we all kind of created about the project that we were on, but it, it speaks to kind of a larger assumption of how we should be working. So can you speak to us a little bit about the what has been implemented in the latest contract and 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 what you hope to see in future contracts like this feels like one step forward in a much longer journey that we need to take to move forward as a as a culture within film yes yes so you know much to my delight you know like i'm i'm so thrilled that after several years of kind of, you know, the DGA did in earnest really listen when we presented this letter. This was a long, it took a while, especially with COVID. It's not a fast moving organization, but they did in earnest listen to what we presented. And then they did in earnest, like form a committee to really look into it with some great people on it. Barry Jenkins was on it. I, you know, Leslie Linker Gladder, who's now the DGA president, and they looked into and they formed a kind of committee to address this. And when the latest rounds of negotiations finally went through, 
I was thrilled to learn that there is a new parental leave policy at the DGA, which is so wonderful. I don't know a ton of details, and I think in part because not all of the details have been hashed out, but what I know is is that it is an employer-funded fund. So that means that 0.5%, there is like a fund where 0.5% of wages will be paid into the fund from the employer side, not from the, you know, the director side. And that will be a fund that will eventually, you know, have money in it. I think that the plan is like in the next two to three years, it will be funded enough from the projects that it will give new parents the opportunity to kind of take the time that they need, pause their productions or, you know, or what have you and not lose their insurance and kind of get the support during that time. Again, I don't know exact details because I think those are still being kind of sorted out, but you know, it's in there, it's real, it's there to stay. And you know, I think it's definitely a step in the right direction. And let Wait. me just r- remind our listeners that this is standard practice across all other industries. Yes. You, know, <laughs> you get parental leave, maternal, paternal leave, you know, the best, the best that I've seen in my corporate days was at Google, you'd get six months off and an additional option to take three unpaid months while you're still keeping your health insurance. It's very accepted and standard to take time to be with your new child and be paid for that time. So this feels like a great step in the right direction, but very behind the rest of the world, the rest no, of the a, industry. It's a really good point. It's a really good point. And also, you know, just to also remind your listeners that like, especially when we're talking about studios and we're talking about like the the streamers that our work eventually goes on, you know, all of those platforms that our, our work eventually goes onto, those studios and streamers absolutely have parental leave and robust good parental leave programs at that. And so I think there was also, you know, what was so frustrating was finding the real disconnect of like, wait, you know, my, my, the people that are supposedly my partners on this endeavor, like they have these great programs and I'm left here, you know, working as I'm literally going into contractions. It goes back to that same thing that's been, I mean, there's so many great points here. I mean, first off, Google is great at six months, but if you live in Sweden, you get two years, father and mother or, or two partners get two years. Which is just like, you know, thinking back to the first two years of my daughter's life, like what a magic time that you'll never get back. But also on top of that, like it goes back to thinking about who is taking the risk on these projects. There was a, you know, not to make everything about the strike, but there was a counter from the AMPTP about the strike that like, well, we feel like we're the ones taking the risk on these projects because we put money in them. And because we put money in them and we're taking the risk on it, we deserve most of the residuals. And, you know, I don't know about you guys, but the entirety of my community of people was like, you guys take the risk. If the project flops, most of you keep your jobs and you all have a salary no matter what. I'm out here, I'm spending 18 months specking something or I'm pitching on a, a thing that you guys have invited me to do all this free work on the, on the hope that one of them strikes. Like, we're all taking risks here. And, you know, the this is this is an industry that's not entirely freelance. It's half salaried, executive, like leave, benefit, stability, and half freelance. And the half that's freelance deserves the ability to see their families too. The the last thing I really want to point out that's so beautiful about this is just because you're in a union or a guild or a group 
doesn't mean that you should just like unions and guilds set their policy based on the will of their membership. So I think a lot of people join a union and then like they never feel like or or a guild and they never feel like they need to go to a board meeting. They never really think about the slate they're voting for. But like the same thing that's true about like being active in a democracy, you should also be active in your guild. And if there's things you want to see, writing proposals, working with your guild. And like what's so amazing is this story is really another one of the stories of like you start down a path and it turns out everybody else is excited to join you and willing to introduce you to other people and willing to connect you because it's like everybody is thinking the same thing. And I think that there's a a habit sometimes people fall into of like forgetting how important the voice of the membership is in these kind of changes happening. Totally. And also, you know, something that I really found in my process with, you know, again, I'm like still relatively new to the DGA. I don't know their inner workings as well as I wish that I did. But, you know, they're like, I was also really surprised to learn that the DGA just wasn't surveying their members as much as I think that they needed to be. So like a lot of the assumptions that they were working on were assumptions that they just held and believed, but they weren't actively asking their members, you know? And so like part of the reason that this never came up is like that they weren't asking people. And I think it's, you know, it's really negligent to have a group of directors, many of whom are women and not be asking them about like, wait, how does having a kid affect you? And I think that like one of the problems was is that they just weren't asking their members and they were just kind of going on old assumptions. And that I found really shocking and disappointing and, you know, made me really realize that like we had to kind of shout about things that we wanted because they weren't going to come and ask on their own. It's such an important point to be identifying that when you're in a leadership position or a position of power within a guild, within your union, just because something isn't like blaringly not working or you're not hearing about it doesn't mean you need to, you can't be constantly rethinking how it works because often like we may not be hearing that something's not working because like we have pushed that into such a minority, those voices into such a, like pushed them out because there is no space for them to be talking. Or like, I I, I just, I'm very high on the book, Think Again by Adam Grant, which I just finished. And they talk a lot about how like NASA's culture of thinking was actually problematic because we weren't questioning or rethinking or asking the right question. So I think that mindset needs to shift in this industry needs to be shifting into that place where we're constantly asking ourselves, are we operating at the top of our intelligence to serve the people who are, you know, putting their lives into this work? And and I'm hopeful, but I also, you know, think we need to be vocal about it. And I am so happy to see that this, that you raising these questions just has led to action. Because when we, we, Charles and I, you know, we first approached you, Year, years ago and we we it was still in flux and now here and and unfortunately i think we're not hearing this is not as much part of the conversation right now because we have the wga strike and the sag strike right now so i'm really appreciative of you taking the time to talk with us about this because this is something that should be at the forefront i feel like oh totally and i know listen i appreciate you guys paul you know having the conversation with me back because also i mean it, you know, these are long, these contract negotiate, 
you know, you can't like change everything every year at these guilds. There's like kind of moments in time where you can. And, you know, we brought this issue up and then COVID happened. And of course the guilds kind of had to focus into like how to protect their members through a crazy shift that we hadn't seen happening. And finally, you know, COVID settling and things are kind of more back to normal. And these negotiations were coming up and I really like was trying to push to make sure that hadn't been forgotten. But the AI conversation kind of comes out of feels like comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And I was just like, no, <laughs> because as much as that, of course, is really important. I just felt like yet again, this issue, especially because it affects women more, it doesn't only affect women. I definitely think of this as parental leave and not just maternal, maternal leave, but, you know, because this issue, you know, I was just so afraid that it would be like yet again on the back burner and like not taken, you know, like nothing's more important than, you know, than these things that kind of affect people in different ways. And, and so I was really pleasantly relieved to see that even though this huge AI conversation has come into the mix, that they kind of didn't abandon this and, and just let it slide. And to that point that change takes time, I have a question for both of you as we wrap up here. Outside of, you know, these contracts that are being built with the guild, how can people support parents on set, especially in this, in the indie context? Because we do have a lot of indie filmmakers listening to No Film School. What can we be doing to support people who have kids? That's a great question. Well, first, I think it's really just a mindset that like, you know, I started to think about during the course of this campaign and it's really stuck with me, which is just that like, it shouldn't be surprising that people have children. This is not, it's not a rare condition. It's not a disease. You know, people are going to have kids. People of a certain age bracket are going to have families and we should kind of in general be building things as though that's exists because it does. Like It's how we all got here. Everyone was born. Like This is not something that we should be surprised by. And further, more granularly, I think absolutely just thinking about humane work hours and that like for a group of the people on your cast or your crew, that they are going to go home and like have an additional very important job to do and that you can't squeeze you know, every last drop of people's energy out of them because you have to have some reserves for a group of people that are going to go home and like do have families. So whether that's addressing more humane work hours, you know, breaks in production where people can maybe return home. You know, I think that there are a lot of things that are pretty common sense once you kind of accept the fact that some people around you are going to have families. That's my answer anyway. (laughs) That's great. No, I mean, like for me, it's all about the paradigm sh- shift that Jess just laid out, where it is like, we, we, we need to shift towards thinking about the fact that films are made by people for now and probably forever. I'm, I'm not convinced by the AI hype and I'm glad we're fighting it as hard as we can. And people need to be treated like they are big, complicated human animals with like an outside life. Like there's, you know, where film might never be a straight nine to five Monday through Friday job with like, but, you know, there's certainly like avenues that we can pursue where one of the elements we do in the schedule is including the fact that people have families. And so like maybe we don't need to be on location for three months in a row. Maybe there can be breaks built in the middle. And yeah, I, like rethinking the paradigm of what we prioritize when we do our schedules and how we blinker that I think is really important. 
Well, as a non-parent, I feel a lot more hopeful than I did four years ago about exploring that. And in part because of the conversations that I've had with both of you guys over the last years. So thank you so much. And thank you, Jess, for all your work. We'll, we'll be sure to share at the end where people can learn more about the campaign and how they can support. And if there's anything else you'd like to say, let us know. Okay. No, that's great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about it because I know there are a lot of conversations going on around guilds right now. And I really appreciate you spending time talking about this one. All right. Well, that was an amazing interview. Thank you so much for bringing Jess on, Gigi. That was really great. And then now Jason Hellerman, screenwriter and screenwriting expert for No Film School is going to join us. We're going to do some strike updates. And then we've got a great Ask No Film School. Our first strike update is that I got it wrong last week when I talked about really small waivers because I forgot, or actually I didn't know because I hadn't really paid enough attention, that the micro-budget agreement and the short-form agreement were never struck. Like if you're out doing your SAG short film, you can still do that this summer. That's not on strike. Only certain contracts are on strike. Now, the micro-budget agreement is really tiny. The micro-budget agreement is like 625 and below. So, you know, the SAG low budget agreement is on strike and that's, you know, that's the the one to $2 million movie. That's still the the area I think they should be doing their waivers. I continue to feel weird things about $40 million waivers. But also the other thing to remember is A24 is not getting waivers. A24 just signed the deal. A24 was like, oh, we'd like to keep making movies. We will just, we're not like tied to AMPTP. So the the A24 movies being made right now are not with waivers. They just signed the new contract, which, which is for them. cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We hope to see much more of that across Hollywood. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that's how the WGA broke the agencies when they went up against packaging. Is It wasn't that all of the agencies broke at once and were like, all right, fine, we won't package, it's dumb. Some of the agencies broke off first because they were like, actually, we can live without this. We will do it. And then gradually, who was the last? Was it WME was the last? I think so, yeah. And so, you know... A24, Neon, there's some other people out there doing interesting stuff that should split off. I mean, Apple, split off, sign the deal, go yeah. for it. Why not? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, we we say it, but it's it would be so smart. Everyone's trying to figure out how to catch up with Netflix. Well, the way to catch up maybe is to be able to make things while Netflix can't, you know, and build your own library with stuff. So I guess we'll see as we go. Are there other strike updates other than me getting that wrong? The the one thing we talked about this a little bit in our interview with Jess Dimmick, but you know the thing, and you guys have probably also uh, already observed this, is the MTPT did put out a statement this week saying, you know, we we don't feel comfortable adding more to people's residuals because we feel like we're the ones taking the risk on projects, so we should get the reward. Which a like continues to participate in this like risk the to the winner goes the spoils thing, which isn't necessarily the way industries work, but also or the way human society works. It's just like a capitalist ethos. But also, like, sure, they risk their money, but corporations have a lot of money, and the people at the corporations rarely risk their jobs. The number of people who keep their jobs after a flop or after a show that, like, gets developed for a year and then doesn't get picked up, the number of people who, like, keep their jobs versus, like, if you're a writer and you develop that show for a year and make zero dollars in development and then the show doesn't happen, that's a big risk you took on that show. So the writers and actors are also taking tremendous risk. And to say, well, you're not making risk because you're not putting up the $20 million. Like, you're putting up your time. You're putting up your opportunities to do other things. You're putting up, you know, all sorts of things. And it can be incredibly complicated. So I think that you do deserve 
continue reward if your show goes on to be super successful. Like you just do. Yeah. It just makes logical sense. If I could expand on that a little bit too, Charles, yes, I please. think you hit the nail on the head there in terms of risk. And one thing I think people don't take into account is that these studios, the way Hollywood is set up now, aren't essentially risking their money until the idea or the project has been you know, rigorously tested across, you know, being packaged with the director, having huge actors involved, you know, like the money's not going out the door at the drop of a hat, you know, as a a dice roll risk, but as one that's been, you know, certified, you know, their executives have signed off. It's made it all the way to the president's desk. They're like, yes, green light this movie. Let's fund this and go out with it. You know, a marketing team has been brought on to discuss whether or not there's a way to make money. You know, so we say the word risk, but it's really not like, they're giving Joe Schmo $100 million to go out there, right? They're still forming internal documents, doing different things. And again, not paying for anything until they're absolutely sure yeah, it's worth the risk. Now, does it always pay off? No. But as screenwriters and you know directors and just creatives in general who are working in Hollywood, we don't have that luxury of running it through the, lamp, you know, through the gamut of different tests. A lot of times when I decide whether or not I'm going to take on a project, the, the only conversation I'm going to have is you know, with my manager to... Does he think these are real people? Is this a real opportunity? Could this get me to the next level? And then also with my peers, have you worked with these people before? Do they pay on time? You know, are the executives idiots? And then also sometimes you don't have the luxury. Maybe your friends have never worked with them. Maybe it's a young upstart. You know, the risk is incurred on your own thing. And, you know, I'll give you a quick personal anecdote. In like 2015, I had an idea I pitched to an A-list actors development company. They're obsessed with it. We sat down and we wrote multiple drafts, again, for free. Because in their mind, they were like, well, why would we option this now? Let's see what he has. And at the time, I was younger and maybe a little bit more naive. Wrote multiple drafts. We attached a director. Wrote multiple drafts with that director. We got notes from the actor. We got notes from the executives. We did another draft. And all of this, again, is for free. At one point, I started pushing for money, like right around when we hit the year mark. Like, what are we doing here? And they kept saying to me, why take 40 grand now when you can have a million dollars later? You know, and, and it's something you believe in, right? Why? It's like a casino bet, right? Why take, why cash out now when you can put it all on black? Anyway, long story short, I am not a millionaire. <laughs> that project wound up falling apart because that director got offered a different job elsewhere, went and took the money he was guaranteed. That project fell apart. And I had an idea that because I had developed it so closely with a production studio, even though I wound up owning it in the end, you know, it kind of had that secondhand stink on it. Whereas we talked to other people around town, they were like, oh, we don't want to rub this actor the wrong way and steal his project. We don't want to do whatever. It wound up dying. I made you know net zero from that. But also, like I, it took up so much time, I didn't work for a year, right? So you made negative what you could have made doing other things. So you know the risk is out there. This is the way Hollywood runs itself now. So you know, it's obviously insulting to hear the studios say it, but I think at the end of the day, like this is why the strike's still happening. It's why we still have people out on the lines. I want to give a shout out to a No Film School podcast listener named Debbie who approached me at Fox last week and was a fan. I think nothing makes me happier than being out on the picket lines and seeing people who listen to the podcast, who engage, and then who are out there in their communities supporting this stuff. So, you know, keep coming out. We're so happy to have you out there. And there's a lot of fun themed pickets coming up. It's going to be hot. Bring some popsicles, you know, and (laughs) come out, strike, and have fun. And hopefully this is the week or, you know, maybe in August, we'll have the AMPTP come back to the table. For those of you who don't know, they still have not come back. So we're still waiting to chat with them and hopefully find a fair and equitable deal moving forward for everybody. So I, I have two sort of riffs on what you talked about. The first is that like you you are right. They mostly don't take huge risks giving a thing to Joe Smo. Nobody like if you look at the ten- tech industry, there are all these weird things where you're like, 
people are putting hundreds of millions of dollars in color.com, which is going to be a new social network. And like, it's gibberish. It's a racket. Like the industry doesn't do that. The industry vets and there's insurance and there are people checking. And like, it is, the industry is very careful. So it is not making big, wild risks very often. Even Barbie and Oppenheimer, which I'm very excited about. And I think they're great. And I'm glad that the, like, it's not a tremendous risk to do a Chris Nolan movie. There are times that like a legitimately large amount of money is given to just Joe Shimo off the street. The best example I can think of is Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, where a guy made an all green screen short that was so good that they made an all green screen $70 million feature with like Hollywood celebrities in it. It kind of flopped, but I love that there was at least one example where people are like, yeah, fuck it, $70 million for a guy who, because we really liked his amazing green screen short. Like there is something kind of fascinating about that that I think is sort of a, a wild moment in history. But the other thing I sort of, liked and wanted to expand on in what you were talking about was there's a line in Heart 8, P.T. Anderson's first movie. But remember, P.T. Anderson grew up in Hollywood. P.T. Anderson's dad's Goulardi. Like, he grew up around Hollywood. I, I don't think he's a Nepo baby. I, I don't think Goulardi is getting you meetings. But I think he grew up in the world. And there's a line in Heart 8, which I've always thought was about Hollywood. Philip Baker Hall's character is very mad at, a, at Gwyneth Paltrow's character. She is a, a young sex worker. And he uses some inappropriate language, but I think it's okay to quote it within the movie quote. She didn't get paid up front with a client. And then he had to show up and get the money from the client. And he turns to Gwyneth Paltrow and he says, the first rule of, the first rule of hooker school is you get the money up front. And I've always thought that that was about Hollywood. Like, there, you know, the yeah. people who can get the money up front. Because yeah. like residuals, like we should be fighting like hell for residuals because we deserve them. But there's also so many stories of like, oh, I had this residual agreement or I had this other agreement that like should have been, and you know, like famously Men in Black, which has spawned like five sequels, has still not shown a profit. And Peter Jackson had to sue to prove that Lord of the Rings went into profit because people were like, well, this hasn't made its money back yet. And so it is like, you know, it is, it's a complicated dance. And there are probably times where it is better to wait and take the million dollars, but it's a risk. It's a gamble. It's not a sure thing. And it is a complicated process to know what the right move is. And to say that the creatives aren't, aren't taking existential risks is wild to me when most of the executives get to keep their jobs. Every once in a while, a flop will flop so hard, we'll see executives lose their jobs. That does happen. But it's got to flop really hard. Yeah, it's got to be a really, and it's got to be their like baby project. You know, it's going to be like, yes. I brought it in, I nurtured it, and I gave it, whatever. But yeah, it's but interesting. That is We're the narrative. That's oh, the narrative that people like are saying that a, a development executive, they're so conservative because they'll lose their job if they have a failure. So they're doing, what do we, what do, we've talked about this on the podcast. It's like the execution independent where it's like, well, everything was great on paper. We had like, look at the numbers because we had this celebrity attached and we had this foreign sales prediction, blah, blah, blah. Like that is the narrative is that those, these conservative actions are being made because their jobs are at risk. But that sounds like it's BS from what you were saying, right? I here. mean, if you had, if you're a development exec and you ha develop a whole bunch of terrible movies, you're more likely to get fired for your stuff never getting made because it's like you're developing things that never go anywhere, that never bring in revenue. And like, yes, people do lose their jobs. But a lot of times those executives, you know, I know executives, like I, I'm friendly with some executive type people. Like, I don't think they're all inherently bad. I know a lot of executives who are like, why is the AMPTP doing this? Like, we'd all like to be back at work. But like, 
a lot of times you're at one studio and your project flops and, you know, you, you wind up at another studio or a production company or an actor shingle. Like, it's not the end of your life and you were on salary the whole time. There are sometimes gaps. I'm not saying they don't take risks. I do think they do. But to say they exclusively take risks, which is the statement the AMPTP made, is a little bit like, like it's overvaluing the importance of the money in the process and forgetting all of the other things, including the people who like work for years on something and never make a dime. Yeah, an old boss used to use this term, and I, I love it. He said, you ride your successes to the top and you ride your failures to the middle. And I always thought that was so prescient in Hollywood, where it's like, yeah, your successes, you could take all the way to the top. But if you're failing, you're going to be in the middle with everybody else. And that's, you know, you'll still have a job. And, and I think that the inverse is true for, or not even the inverse, like that's not true for any creative. Nobody's failing to the middle. You know, you, if you're failing, they, they push you out. And, you know, but I think that's like maybe the distinct difference between both cultures. All right. And then we've got National Film School. Yes, let me read it right here. Also, shout out to, I think it was Daniel or Michael, I'm, I'm sorry, who, who followed up with us on the update that we just did about the strike. Appreciate you weighing in and giving us an update so we could correct this. And now this is from Julius Milanis. Hello, I'm an avid listener and I'm writing my first feature script. I'm getting in on 90 pages. However, it's a bit of a weird movie because the action is more like Power Rangers than Superman. If you're aware of Japanese media, then Common Writer is more aptly put. The feature is about a Muslim ex-firefighter who must save the city of Albuquerque from a seemingly unstoppable robot revolution. With the current strike happening in the States and the slightly off-genre film, this is for American audiences, I wanted to see about seeking international production deals for the time being. What should I look out for and keep in mind when dealing with companies internationally? I really don't want to get screwed on my first feature. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Julius. This is like, I guess it's an interesting question because I think, you know, Finding international money for a movie that takes place solely in America can be a little tricky without stars attached, right? And due to the SAG and WGA strike, I think it would be pretty hard to get stars to read in general. But knowing they're on strike, they're not reading at all, right? So when it comes to foreign sales, a lot of it's finding companies with ties to America that have ties to agencies that have worked with bigger stars and know how to put them in things and then pre-sell the movie internationally. Other than that, you know, a lot of it's just making sure you work with companies that have done this before, right? So when taking some of the international market, you want someone who this isn't their first rodeo, right? Because you want them to be the season one as you learn, and you don't want to both be learning at the same time. I think that's like the general rule of thumb. And again, it's like who has those relationships? It's also filmmakers, right? So the DGA is not on strike. So you could get a director attached. I would look for directors who have previous international hits, right? Stuff that they've taken around the world and people have people have watched. If you get locked into a first-time director, I would see, have they done commercials before? Have their commercials played internationally? Like, what's the, you know, what's the resume they bring to the table or what's the point of view they have that feels it could go anywhere? But I'd also suggest, honestly, like, during this time, like, does it have to take place in Albuquerque? Is there something closer to home that you could figure out? You know, does it take place in your hometown? Could you figure out that way? Just because I think there's always grants all over, you know, localized grants and different things, or, you know, you might be able to find like the European Film Fund or, you know, British Film Fund or Ireland or, you know, one of France, one of these bigger places that maybe could bankroll something like this and you could put in for waivers. But a lot of it's just working with people who have experience 
and then thinking about it. I do think it's it's a tough sell during the strike time just because, like I said, the movie takes place in America. You want to have legs over the world. You're going to need probably an American star. So you might just be stuck in a little bit of a holding pattern for now. But I, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this as well. I mean, you nailed 99% of the advice, I would say. I think the, the one thing... Look, it's always tricky when you're out there doing your first feature to get it financed. That is incredibly difficult. It is not easy. Every movie is a miracle. But I think that international financing as an American, you're going to have a different kind of battle because their preference is often going to be financing domestic projects, right? So if this is set in America with an American creative team that is inexperienced, I think it's going to be an uphill battle for international. I think it's much different if it's like an experienced crew, experienced crew going internationally. So I think the best advice was something that Jason hit on and I want to hit on again is like, what kind of team can you build who's experienced financing projects internationally? Like if you're going to be directing this, like can you find a producer that that likes the project that wants to come on board who has a track record? I had a project partially financed at one point and working with my producer, we were working with some foreign entities to try and come through the second half. And it was like, you know, it, it is tricky because everybody, even if they've never met you, they like to feel like they've met someone you've worked with, right? Like Hollywood, I always tell my students, like, you want to write your resume such that it's really easy to scan who you worked with because everyone's looking for names they're familiar with. Like if you're an up and coming gaffer, like if you're an up and coming DP, your resume should list really prominently the director of every project you've worked on and the producer and the line producer. Like that is as important as anything else because other directors are going to be skimming and they're going to be like, oh, I know that director or, oh, I know someone who knows that director or, oh, I worked with that producer once. And that just becomes a much harder battle if you're going out to a German production company where you have no links, like where you're completely like, there's no, you know, it's like seven steps to connect on LinkedIn. And what you're looking for is you're looking for people that like there's at least some fantasy of the the vetting that comes from like, oh, I know someone who knows someone. So I think you're in a tricky spot, to be honest. I, I would really, instead of focusing on the great wide world of finance right now, I'd really focus on getting an experienced producer interested in the project who will have those relationships already. Because there's a producer I know who literally he's like, oh, yeah, every week I'm flying somewhere for finance. He's a finance producer and you know pretty much every week of his life is an international trip somewhere meeting with finance people yeah. everybody knows him if you have someone like him on your project it is much it is a much different animal than if you don't i want to piggyback on that and this might be the toughest advice but when reading the ask no film school this week the the first thing i noticed was this is my first feature script And to me, that tells me that the first thing you should be doing is writing six more feature scripts. Yes. Because that is going to be what gets anyone on board with your writing. And I think that it's very easy as an emerging writer, creator, and I myself am guilty of this, to think we know what we're doing and to have to... To think we know how to write movies because we've seen a bunch of movies, because we love movies, but the act of writing takes years to get good at. So I just want to like also set expectations, like definitely dream big. And you could be that flash in the pan person who who actually hits the nail on the head. But I have a feeling that the script itself is not ready. 
I think that there needs to be a little bit more experience behind the writing. So this is with very limited exposure. I hear Jason laughing because... I'm just, yeah, no, I think you're, you're totally correct. So yeah. Um, and, and something that I like to do to sort of pressure test this myself is submit for feedback anonymously across a couple different platforms. And also, you know, of course, have mentorship through working writers. So that way you can just know that you're operating not in a vacuum, but you are pressure testing the story itself. Because if it's there, I mean, it's a really cool idea. I'm like, I'd love to see this movie. But you have to have that foundation before you can get a financier attached, period. Absolutely. And just even piggyback off it, let's say you do all those steps and people come back and they're like, this is amazing. You are the Flash our pan has been waiting for. <laughs> Find a producer first. Find, make sure that producer has money and hire a line producer. And that line producer will tell you how much that money your script costs. And I have a distinct feeling that like a firefighter fighting robots in Albuquerque might be a little expensive. Um, you know, so think about that just in terms of foreign sales. A lot of times what you want to shoot for, especially on a first feature, is something sub $10 million. I think it's really hard increasingly to get features budgeted over, let's say, 15 internationally financed just because countries tend to and not put that much money into it. Maybe you could talk to like Saudi Arabia. Maybe they have some, you know, money they're looking for or something like that. Or I know they're looking for action movies and different things, but you know, get a line producer because at the end of the day, what people are going to do is read your script and then decide how much money it costs and if they can make any money back from it. And a, a very expensive movie that takes place in the U S without stars is going to be very hard to finance. But if you can keep that budget down, a great script can go pretty far in international financing. But again, it's, it's got to be a great script. I mean, it all starts there. So, And in the meantime, while you're waiting, write those six more scripts. Try and keep the budgets low. And hopefully you have some success with this. And we'd love to hear from you, you know, as you continue this journey. Are we going to talk about Barbie and Oppenheimer? Everyone's going to be talking about it. <laughs> we just give like a little snippet at the end. Yeah, I'm sure, are. except I have a kid, so I haven't seen either yet. I'm actually going to see Oppenheimer in like a week, and I can't wait. And that's like the soonest someone with a kid gets to see it. But You're you guys, living oh, vicariously through us. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Please talk about Barbenheimer. I am like thoroughly jelly. We have an uh, article on nofilmschool.com. By the time this drops, it'll be up about the lessons Hollywood should learn from Barbenheimer. And I think there are many. But I just think like it's such a joyous moment. We should all like it felt like a holiday this morning with all did. my friends. Um, you know, Barbie crushing what is like the $300 million worldwide mark, I think, somewhere around there. And Oppenheimer in the 150s worldwide. And I think we're talking like 160 domestic for Barbie and 80 domestic for Oppenheimer. Like these are amazing numbers. And in a post-COVID world, we've been waiting for a weekend like this to, mm -hmm. so to finally have it with two very different movies is awesome. And, and two very different filmmakers, both great in their own ways. It's a real success for Hollywood, I think. Uh, people should be celebrating. I, I hope this rolls through the summer and I hope we have a really big fall because we need it. If you love movies, this is a very important weekend for you. I think I said in the yeah. article, I, I really, truly hope this is the first chapter written in how Hollywood bounced back after COVID because I, and I think it's an important one. Yeah. I was at a six-year-old birthday party and all of the adults were talking about movies and it felt like I was back in LA again, even though I'm in New York because like it was all, and I was like, fuck yeah. Everybody's talking about movies. We're back, I'm, baby. We're back. I'm in Salt Lake City right now. And I overheard people talking about it. People talking about it at a wedding where nobody works in the industry. Like it was very, very exciting. And I also want to call out specifically the power of the marketing that has gone behind both of these films. I mean, you Google Barbie and it, the 
Google page turns pink. And I think that it's so important in this saturated market, in this attention, you know, grabbing market where that we are supporting films with big marketing budgets. We can't expect something to be made and not supported with without that marketing push. Of course, the most valuable thing is word of mouth, but we've definitely seen Barbie go all out with these marketing budgets and it's so impressive. And it's actually also fueling the sort of buzz and excitement that I feel because it feels like the good old days. <laughs> it does. And, and I think, you know, just to give you a preview from that article, maybe the point that I, I make in the middle of it and one that I, I think is present now is that Greta Gerwig and Chris Nolan are not, they're, they're obviously like household names now, but they were indie filmmakers that Hollywood allowed to be nurtured. You know, yeah. it's, you know, Greta Gerwig, Lady Bird, Little Women, now Barbie. It's like you can see the trajectory of her career, but all of them have the same sort of focused voice of someone talking about different things, talking about what it means to be a woman today and, and you know, what are the lessons. And Nolan similarly, right, following to Memento, to Batman, you know, and, and, and you know, beyond that, you know, these other larger blockbusters. Again, a, a focused, creative person who, you know, through mentorship and rising budgets was allowed to, you know, dream bigger and bring those dreams to the big screen. And I think we just don't have as much of that today. And, you know, if there's one lesson I hope Hollywood takes away, it's like finding these voices and not stifling them out, but embracing them and allowing them to be creative is a way to make money at the box office, you know, across genres, across everything. And, you know, I I think that's what we're seeing audiences embracing now. I love that. I love that too. That's like beautiful. That's like very inspiring. Hell yeah. All right. Go see the movies. They're both amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have to plug anything? I'm 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 back on the I'm not gonna say it. I'm not gonna call it X. I'm back on the Twitter because of the strike. <laughs> so you can find me on the Twitter and the Mastodon. And I do YouTube stuff sometimes. I'm at Lost in Graceland. You can also follow Jessica Dimock's work at her Instagram, Jessica Dimock. And you can also follow the DGA Parenthood Penalty Campaign at paidleave.us slash DGA Parenthood Penalty. I'm at Jason Hellerman across platforms. And as always, if you're out on the strike lines, particularly at Fox, where I usually am, come say hello. Let's talk movies. Let's talk your career. Let's talk about whatever. I'm happy to see you. And thank you for the emails. I got a really good email from a guy named Fergal this week who sent me a whole breakdown of the lenses used in Barry Lyndon. Fergal, my man, thank you so much. It was a, that was a, an incredible email and really informative. So, you know, keep them coming. Send me that. I want to read it. it sounds I great. I will. All right. <laughs>